He not only is um, in this chapter, he's, uh, Paul is in prison, and he um, knows he's not going to get out of there alive. And so he's laying this burden of, the, of responsibility on the shoulders of a young man, scholars suggest was probably about 17 years of age. And he's placing the burden of responsibility of this great gospel upon him. And he's not only describing the kind of person that God is shaping that would most effectively um, carry this word, but he is describing in this text, in this sermon, the word itself that's to be carried, the gospel that we are to communicate. And beginning in verse 8, he, he writes, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. There are many responsibilities that we take upon ourselves when we become a child of God and we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. Perhaps the greatest responsibility we assume is the stewardship of the gospel of grace. Peter talks about this in the fourth chapter of his epistle, that God has given us the stewardship of His grace. It's an amazing concept or thought that God, even though He knows our weakness and our failure and our propensity to sin, has placed in our hands this gospel of grace and has made us dispensers of it. And Paul stands in awe of that. He spends most of his time in awe of the fact that God has made him and made us stewards of the gospel of grace. And because it is a stewardship, that means that one day we'll all be accountable for what we've done with this gospel to, that he's entrusted to us. And it means that each one of us someday will stand before God and give an account as to our faithfulness, our lack of faithfulness, to the stewardship of the gospel. Now there are some things that I know that I'm under no obligation to share with you. And, you know, I'm putting it in another term, there's some things I know it's none of your business, you know. <laughs> and there's some things that you know that you're under no obligation to, to share with me. In fact, I really don't care what you know, really. But there are some things that I know that I am under obligation to share with you and everybody else. If I was 
traveling tonight down a dark road and I came on a bridge that had been washed out by a storm. Now I have knowledge that I'm under obligation to share with you and everybody else. And if I did not share that knowledge that I had, I'd be criminal, probably be prosecuted for it. There are some things that I know that I'm under obligation to share with you. One of them is the gospel of grace. That's an obligation that each of us has to share. He calls this the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's an interesting word. We get our word martyr from that word testimony. It means that that which we have to share is not just data that we've heard about. It's something we have thrown our lives into. Here's a man standing on a corner and he sees two cars come together. One runs a stop sign and hits the other car. He's an eyewitness to that. So he goes down to the courtroom and to the, to the lawsuit that this man's filing and he comes in there and he gives witness to what he's seen. He, it's a, he's a neutral person. He, knew, he didn't know either one of them. And he's, it's a cold, detached reporting of the facts that he's seen. After he gets through, they bring this old guy in. He's got his leg in a cast. He got one arm in a sling. He got his head all bandaged up. He was in the wreck. Now it sure is going to be hard for him to be neutral and detached and make a cold reporting of the facts. The Apostle Paul said that we have, we, are, uh, we have experienced what we need to share and there is no cold, detached reporting of the data. We're telling what we've experienced and we're under obligation to do that. He calls it an appointment, an appointment. And if it is an appointment, you not only have the obligation, you have the right to share that. Sometimes somebody will say, well, I don't think I have the right to cram something down somebody else's throat. Yes, you do. You have the right and the obligation to share that which you've experienced yourself. Now, what Paul is dealing with here in this text is what this gospel is like with regard to its substance and to its source. First of all, with regard to its substance, there's a threefold analysis of the gospel, marvelous analysis of the gospel we're to share in verse, verses 9 and 10. First of all, he says, He has saved us. It's point of time action. It's aorist tense. It's a real experience, a definite experience. It's not something you just kind of, you know, kind of gradually drift into. He's saying that somewhere in my life at a point of time, I had an experience with God that I call salvation. He saved us. And it is as definite, I'm as certain that I was born the second time as I'm certain I was born the first time. Now, does that mean that a person should remember the exact date he was saved? No, the emphasis is not on when it happened, but that it happened. And Paul is saying, this happened to me, and I'm definitely sure about it. I remember S.M. Lockridge, he was this great, big, giant of a preacher, black man. 
from Los Angeles, California, that was such a popular speaker in the 60s. I think he's preached in this church, as a matter of fact. He must have weighed 350 pounds. He was huge. I heard him tell one time that he went into a, to a court, to the courthouse in Los Angeles to take care of some legal business. When he went in this office, he said, there's a little old wimp of a guy. Ask him for a birth certificate. He said, well, I don't have one. And he said, well, you can't transact this business without a birth certificate. SM said, well, why do I need a birth certificate? He said, the wimp said, to prove you're born. <laughs> he said, well, I thought that was a little strange. Here I am standing there, 350 pounds, six foot four, and he wants to know some proof that I've been born. He said, man, look at me. <laughs> he said, I'm certain I'm born. The word is sortera here for salvation. It means to be whole and complete. When I first started out in the ministry, I thought that the reason why people needed to be saved was so they wouldn't go to hell. And so I tried to get people to be saved so they wouldn't go to hell. I've come to a new understanding, a more complete understanding of what salvation is, so terror is. It's not just being rescued from danger. It's finding wholeness in life and fulfillment. And what Paul is saying is this, that you're not whole until you're saved. Did you see that headline that came out of the Hurricane Andrew? The headline read, Man Wants to Know Who He Is. And the story of that headline was that they found this man wandering around after, in the aftermath of Hurricane Andrew. He, he had amnesia and he was trying to find, who, find out who he was. The Apostle Paul said, I found in Jesus Christ who I am. I've been saved. Not only he said that he's saved, does the gospel save us, but he said he... He calls us. Now there are two things I need to say about that. He called us. He called us to Himself. It's a wonderful thing to be chosen, isn't it? To be wanted by somebody. Every Sunday morning, one of the first things I read in the Dallas Morning News is that section in the Today section about newlyweds. That makes me sound like a real macho guy, you know, when I turn over a newlywed section. Well, it's always, have, always have these stories, these anecdotes about these people who got married last week and their proposals. They're always something unique about these proposals. One guy proposed to his wife by putting his proposal in one of these fortune cookies. Took his girlfriend who liked Chinese food to a Chinese restaurant. She opened up the fortune cookie and said, Honey, will you marry me? Or something like that. One guy put his ring, he bought this expensive engagement ring, put it in the dessert, had it arranged that the waiter would put this ring in the dessert and bring it to his fiancée at the end of this wonderful meal. Problem was, the waiter took it to the wrong table. <laughs> These people... These guys walked out, boy, wow, must be some kind of promotion here. Found a ring in my dessert. One guy proposed 
by putting his proposal on the, on the scoreboard at Ranger Stadium at a Ranger game. You, you may have been there, honey, this is Fred, will you marry me? You know, that kind of stuff. It's wonderful to be chosen. And God took that invitation, put it on a cross, and lifted it up and said, I want you. One of the most favorite words in the Bible is the word come. I've chosen you. And Jesus said it's like the shepherd in search of the lamb. And he's, his legs are bleeding and his feet are tired and his eyes are burning. He's scaled the mountains. He's traversed the hillsides. He's cupped his hand over his mouth and called into the valleys. And the name he's called is your name. He called you to himself. Not only does he call you to himself, he calls you to a life of holiness. Paul says this, he calls this a holy calling. I love the J.B. Phillips translation. He says we are called to Him to be holy. It's the missing emphasis, in my opinion, of the, of the doctrine of the, of the Soterra, holiness. Five times in the Old Testament when God was giving the law, He said, be holy as I am holy. That word means to belong to God, to be set apart, to be separate, to be different. It means to belong to God and to become like the God to whom we belong. It's the missing emphasis of the Soterra. He's called us to holiness. There's a third thing he says about this gospel with regard to substance. He says he brought life, L-I-F-E, he brought life and immortality to light by the abolishment of death. He brought life to light. And the picture here is of man in darkness. He's walking around, he's groping around in darkness. And out there beyond the darkness is life. But he wanders through life, missing it. And he says that what Jesus did was he drug the life out of the darkness and brought it out where everybody could see it. What Jesus did was, take a look, man, here is life. Here is life. There's a threefold emphasis here. He not only is, he bring, not only brings it to light and makes it clear, but he's the source of it. And what Paul is saying is this, that Jesus said, I am the source of life, life. And this is what it looks like. The rich young ruler saw it. Justin Martyr in his magnificent little book now out of print called Songius Martyrum tells a story about these early Christians in Asia who were under Domitian persecuted. A part of their persecution was to put them in galley ships and make them row their own ships to the northern coast of Africa and then put them into the Numidian mines to work the rest of their lives as slaves. And Mortar says that when they got to the northern coast of Africa and they got them out of those slave galleys, they gouged out one of their eyes they branded them on the forehead and they put them in chains. They put a chain around their wrist 
and they put a chain around their neck so that they would never stand totally erect again. And they drove them into the Numidian mines. He said, if they were fortunate, they died early, but many lived on and on. And he said, when archaeologists came and uncovered the history of that horrible time in, in life, they found that these men and women who survived that persecution would ride on the walls of those mines, those catacombs, those caves. They would write the names of loved ones and family, or they would write scripture verses they had committed to memory. But Martyr said, there was one word that occurred again and again on every wall. He described it like this. It was like a long line of black swallows chasing one another to the light. It was the word Vita, Vita, life. For these Christians had found in Jesus Christ Vita, they had found life. And he said, he not only brought this life that's eternal to light and is the source of it, but he abolished death. Now we got a little bit of a problem with that one, perhaps, for people keep on dying. I preached a funeral yesterday. As a matter of fact, hardly a week passes that I don't preach one. People keep on dying. You and I keep on dying. But when he talks about in this verse of the abolishment of death, he's not talking about death's existence. He's talking about death's effectiveness. And what he's saying is this, that in Jesus Christ, death is harmless. Can I say that again? For the people of God, death is harmless. Now you'd think that when he came out of that tomb, all of heaven's trumpeteers would have been there to announce it. But he, they, well, they didn't. They didn't. He just walked out of the tomb. And when he did, he abolished death forever. He made it harmless for God's people. I've seen the empty tomb. The interesting thing about the empty tomb right out of the city of Jerusalem, right outside the walls, is that it's next door to the Jerusalem Transit Authority. And right over here is the Garden of, Gets uh, the, Garden of the Crucifixion. There's a skull-looking hill supposedly where Jesus was crucified. Now right over here is this empty tomb where you can walk in and look around. And right over here is the Jerusalem Transit Authority with hundreds literally of buses lined up and thousands of people milling around. And as you look at that, it just dawns on you that for every one of those people milling around getting a bus, there's one problem for every person, one burden for every child, man, and woman, one tragedy after another. But over against that tragedy stands the empty tomb, for he has abolished death, man's last problem. 
That's the substance of the gospel. Now the source. He says in verse 9 that He saved us and called us for two reasons. First, because of this purpose that was granted to us in eternity. Now watch this carefully. He's saying we're saved and called not because of some potential God sees in us that He didn't see in anybody else. Not because of anything that we have done. Not of works, lest any man should boast, are we saved. But He's called us and saved us because of a purpose that He had in eternity past. Are you hearing me? God in eternity, before you ever were, before you were ever born, God said, I've got a purpose for him, for her, and I'm going to save him for that purpose, save her for that purpose, and he saved you for the purpose, and he saved the purpose for you. And if you want to know how to live the Christian life, then you just line your life up with God's purpose. You say, no, I don't think there's any real purpose for my existence. I've heard that this week. You walk down the halls of a nursing facility and hear somebody inside say, I wish that God would go ahead and call me home. There's no purpose for my existence. You walk through the halls of a prison and you see those men and women who wonder if there's a reason for life. You go into the dormitories of our universities, on the campuses of our high schools. You walk the streets of our cities and you'll see it in the faces of men and women and boys and girls everywhere. There's no real reason for life. It's just the sentence that is pronounced upon the man who was born. God says, no, not so. You have a purpose, and I've saved you for that. And He saved us by His grace. And I'm not going to try to describe what that means. Vance Havana was right when he said, Our feeble attempts to describe it are inadequate. For any attempt to describe the grace of God, to fill up the, you know, our mental receptacles would just overflow. There's no way to do it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There's no way to, to, to verbalize that unmerited favor of God. That's why He saved you, because there is this delight of our God to make you full and whole. Pigany was a slave he was a member of the Walamao tribe in interior Ethiopia. In the days prior to World War II, some missionaries came to that tribe of Satan worshipers and preached the gospel. Tigani 
was one of the first converts. One of those missionaries was named Raymond Davis. He redeemed him. But he was still a slave, and his master was not pleased by his decision to become a Christian. He refused to let him go to Bible studies. He often beat him and humiliated him, a price that Tigani was willing to pay. There was a price that he could not pay that was the price of his freedom from slavery. For $12, he could be free. And so the missionaries pooled their money and they paid the $12 and Tigani was free. A few days later, the missionaries were expelled from Ethiopia and Raymond Davis did not return for 24 years. Tigani now was free physically and spiritually and he lived in the memory of his redemption. One day word came that Raymond Davis was coming back to Ethiopia to visit that part of the world. And Tigani went down to the mission station day after day after day to wait for his return. Dates on a calendar, hours on a clock meant nothing to him. And he waited. Finally the day came and Raymond Davis returned. He was, in a, he was in a car driven by another missionary. When it rounded the corner, Tigane saw it, and he went running to the car. He came to the window and took out his hand, the hand of Raymond Davis, and began to kiss it. And he ran alongside the car. The driver slowed down so he could run alongside the car. With his hand in the window, he shouted, Behold the man who redeemed me has returned. Behold the man who redeemed me has returned. The driver of the car stopped. And when Raymond Davis got out, Tigany fell on his knees before him. He put his arms around his legs and held on for dear life and kissed the dusty shoes of Raymond Davis. Raymond picked up this, this freed slave and they stood there and embraced and wept. I ask you, friend, are you not under obligation? to proclaim the man who redeemed you? Are you not under compelling obligation to proclaim the message of the one who redeemed you? And is there not a compelling, burning compulsion to give your life, heart, soul, mind, and body to the man who redeemed you. Today, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the redemption that has come through Jesus Christ. 
and for that glorious good news that we have been entrusted to proclaim. And I pray, dear Lord, that as we run through life, we will be saying, Behold the man who redeemed me. To our family, to our acquaintances, to our friends. And may there be today the commitment of men and women, boys and girls, to the Savior. For I pray in His name. There are three invitations. Look here. I invite you to come this morning if you've never committed your heart and life to Jesus Christ. There is a definite point in time where you repent of sin and you trust Jesus and Jesus alone to be your Savior. Can you do that today? Will you do that today? And I encourage you this morning, if you're those who've already been saved, but you're silent in your witness, to make a commitment to that proclamation or to join this church as a testimony of your faith and leadership of God. And as I said in that early service, maybe you've been saved. You've never made public your decision. Aren't you under obligation to let Him know? Let us, let us know about Him. While we stand to sing, we invite your response.